The notion that because we don't have firsthand testimony from somebody who didn't survive means it didn't happen is, I think, a huge piece of the gaslighting that we're seeing, as you referenced. We have testimony. We have testimony from people who are speaking because the ones who had this done to them aren't alive to speak for themselves. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. It's been tremendously disheartening to watch the reactions of so many to Hamas' crimes of October 7th. One of the most obvious cases of this has been the silence of so many organizations dedicated to the protection of women regarding the rape and mutilation of Israeli victims by Hamas terrorists as they rampaged through southern Israel. Many of us assumed that in 2023, Genocidal murder of Jews was a thing of the past. We were obviously wrong. Many of us also assumed that in 2023, sexual violence would be universally condemned by those who, until now, had marched under the banner of protecting and believing all women. Once again, we were wrong. Apparently, the Me Too movement doesn't really apply when the victims are Jews or when the perpetrators are Palestinians. There is abundant evidence of gender-based violence perpetrated by Hamas. Yet many people who choose to support Hamas are engaged in gaslighting, that is, trying to convince us that people didn't see what they saw and don't know what they know to be true. It can make you question your sanity, which is exactly what these Hamas supporters are trying to do. But some people are heroically fighting against this gaslighting, including my guest today, Rachel Bayer. She attended a session at the United Nations two weeks ago dedicated to presenting testimony about the sexual violence that undoubtedly occurred. In this episode, Rachel frankly and graphically describes some of the sexual violence of October 7th and also talks about what happened at the UN, why this session was important, some possible reasons that so many organizations have remained silent, the reason that we should not castigate these organizations when they do issue statements months after the fact, and more. This is not an easy episode to listen to, and as Rachel makes clear at the outset, please consider whether it's right to listen to this episode in front of your kids or at all if you'll find the discussion triggering. For those who decide to listen, this is an essential conversation that, unfortunately, we cannot ignore. We'll get to that conversation in a moment. First, let me remind you to subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate it and write a review. Please subscribe to my Substack Orthodox Conundrum Commentary. My most recent article, entitled Right Now, It's Just Not Fair, addresses the issue of ultra-Orthodox military exemptions in Israel for thousands of students, and why I believe that the system needs to change and change quickly. You can get your free subscription by clicking on the link in the description of this podcast. And finally, remember that JCH Podcast Productions is the best place for you to go in order to produce your podcast from start to finish. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com so that we can discuss helping you make a high-quality, professional, and popular podcast. Rachel Bayer is CEO of the Bayer Group, a consultancy that creates safe spaces through impactful abuse and harassment prevention work. A former sex crimes and child abuse prosecutor and former managing director of the Sexual Misconduct Investigations Division of a global investigative firm, she is a thought leader known for her empowering keynote lectures. Find her on Instagram and LinkedIn under at rachel.bear, that's R-A-H-E-L dot B-A-Y-A-R, and on Facebook at The Bayer Group, sharing tips on abuse prevention. 
Rachel Bayer, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Before we begin, I know that you want to offer a disclaimer to our listeners today. Yeah, you know, I know that there are so many people that listen to this podcast um, for so many fabulous reasons, but we are going to be talking today about gender-based violence during times of war. We're going to be talking about things that happened on October 7th by Hamas to Israeli women and to men and to children. And I just think it's important for people to know you don't have to listen. If you have kids around, if you are concerned about anything, feeling too overwhelming, if graphic information or testimony is something that will be hurtful to you or harmful to you, it's it's okay to skip this one. It's very important for people to be mindful of that. Yeah. Now let's get into our difficult topic today. We're going to be speaking, as you mentioned, about gender-based violence that occurred on October 7th. And I'd like to ask you, Rachel, about the general phenomenon of gender-based violence in wartime and why people consider it to be in its own separate category apart from all the other terrible war crimes that we discuss. You know, I think I think there's probably a simple answer and a complex answer. But quite simply, it's just absolutely horrific on its own. Right. The idea that you might use a woman's body to assert power and control with torture or to assert power and control in a way that not only might kill someone, but might strip them of every aspect of their dignity. And the same applies to any type of sexual warfare against men. So I think that a lot of times people will consider it a separate category because it is so much about that power and control stripping away dignity and in someone's last moments or in their last moments before being taken, taking something from them that they can never get back. And so I think because of the many, many years of testimonies that we have about gender-based violence in a variety of different wars, right, for all time, I think the notion of, of thinking about it a bit separately is because of the impact that we know that it has. So that's a very important point. And when we talk about gender-based violence, you're saying that does not mean women-based violence. It can be gender violence against men as well. It's not only raping women. Correct? Am I right in saying yeah, that? Absolutely. I mean, look, men can be raped in times of war and not in times of war, right? We know that any type of sexual you know, aggression or terrorism can happen to anybody of any gender, right? Can happen to anybody of any age because a lot of times when people think about sexual violence or they think about rape or sexual assault, people have this misconception that it has to do with, you know, wanting something sexual or having something sexually satisfying, which is not the case, right? It is about exerting power and control and humiliation and degradation. And in a time of war, especially that could happen to someone of any gender and also not in a time of war. And again, I want to hammer down on that important point because at least as I understand, and please correct me if I'm stating this not exactly correctly, but this type of gender-based violence in war should not be seen as someone giving into some sort of sexual urge. It's no, an attempt of correct. degrading and power. Is that correct? Correct. 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 And look, what we know from much of the both footage that Hamas recorded themselves, um, as well as testimony of first responders, as well as testimony from captured Hamas terrorists, is that there was also an aspect of this that was fueled by, by drugs. I wanted to ask you about that because we have heard that some of the terrorists were on some sort of drug. And while we would never say that the drugs made them do it, presumably it can remove inhibitions or something like that. Can you talk a little bit about that? 
Yeah. I mean, anytime that you are high or that you are on any type of drugs, right, things will change. You'll either, depending on what the drug is and what it does to the chemistry of your body, it could make you move quickly. It could make you move fast. It could make you do a lot of different things. Drugs don't make somebody sexually assault somebody else. But I think that when you are talking about terrorists in a mass group that had a very particular plan and were also given substances to make that plan, you know, in their mind, go to the like hundredth degree, you're not talking, you're never talking about a terrorist that wanted to satiate their sexual appetite. You are talking about people that had the goal and the purpose. And this is not just conjecture, right? We have testimony of the Hamas terrorists who talked about the instructions that they were given. And they were given instructions, not just to kidnap and to kill, but to truly destroy. And the way that you destroy somebody is taking everything away from them that they possibly could have, including aspects of their body. So that leads us to what might be the most difficult part of our conversation today, which is talking about what actually happened on October 7th. And on some level, I'm embarrassed that we have to do this, but there has been so much gaslighting, which means, for those who don't know, convincing people who saw something or who know something that what they know or see is not actually what happened. Right. There's been so many people who are trying to say none of what we saw on October 7th actually happened. I think it's important for us all to actually know that it did happen and how we know that it happened. So if it's okay, Rachel, could you please talk a bit about what happened on October 7th with regard to gender-based violence, and how do we know that this is true? And let me just make one more point in terms of that, because some people say, of course you believe all women, but those women who were raped are either kidnapped or dead, so we, there's no one to believe. Obviously an absurd claim, but still, that's where it's coming from. That's some of the arguments that I've heard even some mainstream people try to argue. You know, I also just want to say something on that before we even get to the crux of that question, which is, you know that I was a, a sex crimes prosecutor for a number of years, and I can tell you that the amount of crimes that I prosecuted where there was video footage, right, was, or that there was um, some sort of corroborating evidence, I think it was probably like two, maybe three, of all the hundreds and hundreds of crimes that I prosecuted. And I think that the notion that in a time of war, we would expect that A, um, people would be able to speak about what was done to them, and B, we wouldn't realize that so many of those people are dead and cannot speak for what was done to them. The information, much of the information that we have comes from both the terrorists themselves, the footage that they had on their GoPros, because they recorded a lot of this. But I also think it's important to understand that we have the firsthand testimony of the people that were the first responders to those kibbutzim, to those homes who actually saw the bodies and saw what was done. We have the firsthand testimony of the people who prepared soldiers and people for burial, right? We have firsthand testimony of people from the Israeli National Police Unit, right, in the particular areas who talked about what they walked into and what they saw. The notion that because we don't have firsthand testimony from somebody who didn't survive means it didn't happen is, I think, a huge piece of the gaslighting that we're seeing, as you referenced. We have testimony. We have testimony from people who are speaking because the ones who had this done to them aren't alive to speak for themselves. I apologize for being so graphic, but the people who saw the aftermath, the people who came in to take care of the bodies, the forensic scientists and the forensic experts who are dealing with what happened on October 7th, can they tell that there was rape, that there was gender-based violence? 
Yes, uh, about um, at this point, two weeks ago, there was a UN special session um, that was arranged both by the Israeli ambassador to the UN, as well as the National Council of Jewish Women and the Schusterman Foundation. Um, and Cheryl Sandberg uh, played a big part in this as well. And there was a special session to essentially bring out testimony and provide testimony about the gender-based violence from October 7th by Hamas. And I was... I guess the word is privileged to be in the room to hear that testimony and to see some of that footage um, firsthand, although I can tell you that I spent a lot of days um, pretty nauseous afterwards, and I and I have a pretty thick skin when it comes to things like this. Um, but we heard graphic testimony from somebody named Simcha Greiman, who's a volunteer rescue worker from Zaka, who described the sexual torture he walked into when he walked into the houses to essentially pick up pieces of bodies to be able to um, ensure that everybody was buried right with their bodies. He described, and before I go into this, I just want to give a second disclaimer. I am going to talk about some graphic testimony now. I would just encourage you, if this is not something that you can listen to, you can always skip ahead a bit, but he described walking into homes and seeing naked bodies. He described seeing a naked body of a female that had objects and nails that were put into orifices of the body. He described um, a situation where bodies were so mutilated and genitals were completely disfigured or cut off that they could not tell the gender of the person that they were finding their body of. And he described, and it was it was heartbreaking to hear him pause and talk and describe what it what it meant to walk into someone's home, and they are so disfigured that you can't tell if they were a woman, like you can't tell, right? And we heard testimony from a woman named Sherry Mendez, um, who is was is one of the people that's tasked with preparing the bodies of female soldiers for burial. Um, and she described in in the most um, unbelievable way what it means and what it meant to care for parts of bodies that were left once they assessed that these had been female soldiers to care for them in death in the way that they were clearly not cared for at the end of their life. And one of the things that we heard, especially from a woman named Yael Reichart, who's the superintendent of one of the Israeli national police units, was walking into these scenes, walking into these homes, the roads, the streets, and quite literally seeing, and this was actually referred to by, by Simcha as well, I mean, body parts strewn, strewn apart, you know, breasts cut off. Um, and I think that what's so important for people to understand is that we actually have, and I have not seen it. Um, I have spoken with people who have seen it. Um, I don't feel the need to watch the graphic testimony from Hamas's bro GoPro cameras. Um, that's not something that I, I want to see, but them describing what it was like to cut off people's breasts and throw them around. I mean, when we talk about gendered-based violence, right? We are not just talking about what was done to mutilate bodies in life and in death, 
but we know from their own testimony that they raped people. We know from their own testimony that they rape people with objects, with their own bodies. So when we talk about gender-based violence, you know, a lot of times we think about it as a whole, but these are things that were done to people, right? People that, that some of us know, people that our friends know, our families know, people that we don't even need to know to understand the significance of what that probably meant, whether it was in their last lives or honestly, whether they are still being held as captives at this time. That's so difficult to hear. And it only raises the question, which I assume you probably can't answer. It's all conjecture. But given the GoPro testimony, the video that Hamas themselves took of what was going on, given the testimony of the first responders and those people from Zaka who came after people had already been violated and killed, how is it that people can still deny Perhaps this is a rhetorical question, but how is it that people can still deny what happened? I mean, I, this is a comparison which I'm not trying to make because it's fraught with all sorts of problems or whatever. But the Nazis burned and destroyed all their victims so that no one could know what had happened, and that has led to Holocaust denial. Here we're talking about denial of something which is right on video, which people can look at and know if they only want to. I think that part of the problem is that we sometimes think that logic will win out. And I also think that we all have a different understanding of what true evidence is. And I used to see this as a prosecutor all the time, right? You would have somebody get up on the stand, testify as to what was actually done to them, to their bodies. You had the, you had the survivor, they were out and talking and you would have people say, I don't believe it. Or no, there needed to be additional proof or we need something that's, that's more, right? Or something doesn't seem right. I think that there's a real cognitive dissonance that all of us have as part of the way that we keep ourselves sane to not understand things even when they're right in front of us. And I think that when you have the added layer of the enormity of what um, the world and what different people think about Israel and Gaza, about Jews, about Israelis, about Palestinians, about Palestine, about what should exist and what should not exist, about the government, about all of the different political ramifications. I think what it's done is it's chip away, it's chipped away at the ability for anybody that doesn't believe that either Israel should exist or that believes that October 7th was justified as an act of resistance to say, no, we don't believe it. Or if we believe it, it wasn't as bad as you think it is. And also, we don't have firsthand account from the people who actually went through it, right? If they had the firsthand account of those people who are no longer alive, they probably still wouldn't believe it, right? Because there is the ability to have that cognitive dissonance. And I think that when people kind of drill down in the idea of what their belief system is, it's always going to color how it is that you see certain things. And I think that a lot of people, especially the people I see out there on social media who are, you know, sharing things with the masses, who have millions of people that are either following them or hearing them, who are sharing and trying to get this, this, information out in a way so people can understand it. I think what they're experiencing is it's either someone, no one's going to be swayed, right? You either believe that Israel doesn't have a right to exist, or you believe that Israel does have a right to exist, or you believe that the atrocities on October 7th happened, but it doesn't justify what's happening now. And I think it is so polarizing that people have an inability to step back and say, we can hold multiple truths at the same time. 
right? We can understand that what happened on October 7th was horrific. We can also understand that there are there are innocent people that are in Gaza who have lost family members and limbs, right? You can hold those multiple truths at the same time, but for some reason, there's an inability to do that. And I think that one of the reasons why this special session at the UN was actually put in place was because of this notion of we can hold multiple truths. You can have a political stance that completely differs from another person. You can believe in a million different things, but what we can also all do is recognize that what happened on October 7th by Hamas was horrific. And we can agree that in times of war, rape is always a crime. That idea of holding multiple truths and that being the problem that we're dealing with, the inability to do so, I think is such a crucial insight. Before I get into that UN session that you just mentioned, because I want to hear more about that, but something else that you mentioned now it does remind me a bit, once again, to invoke Holocaust denial. The people who deny the Holocaust are also the people who say, but if it did happen, they deserved it. In the same way over here on some level, there's an element of, oh, they didn't actually do it. The people who claim that are the ones who think it actually was justified if it did happen. Right. Such a strange dynamic there. Yeah. And, and I wish I had an answer as to why. And I'm sure that there are many mental health professionals who could opine on kind of that phenomenon. And I'm sure that there has been much that has been written about that. But the concept of denial, especially when you have that evidence right in front of you, is really just, it's overwhelming to think about. It's overwhelming. And frankly, I find it depressing because yeah. it makes you feel like there's nothing we can do because no matter what I say, no matter how much evidence I give you, you can always say, well, maybe not. Yeah. Let's talk about that UN session that you went to. Sure. Can you tell me what that was? Sure. So it was a special session um, that was facilitated and arranged both by Gilad Erdan, who's the Israeli ambassador to the UN, the National Council of Jewish Women, the Schusterman Foundation, Cheryl Sandberg, and a variety of other organizations that um, all came together and said, we need to provide testimony and we need to do it in the UN to people from all different countries, walks of life and organizations, providing testimony specifically on the gender-based violence from October 7th by Hamas. It was a very, um, the best way to put it is, it was a very narrow specific purpose. Testimony about the gender-based violence on October 7th, hearing from people who were those first responders. And from what I know, there were over 40 countries that had delegations in the room. There were multiple organizations who, as of the date of this UN special session, had not made public statements about gender-based violence on October 7th by Hamas. Since then, I believe that there have been a few different organizations that actually have made statements such as um, Planned Parenthood. I believe that Rain also made a statement. And so there are there are organizations that after that day have been able to come out and say, you know, what happened on October 7th was horrific and what was done by Hamas was horrific. And I think that you know, there were so many people in the room. It was really packed and it was packed by a lot of people who are also, you know, you had celebrities, you had people who have very active social media um, followings. And I think that we were all sitting there um, completely silent. I mean, you could hear a pin drop in that room. It was, you know, not just silence, but like the only time that the silence was broken was by tears. You know, you had people who were just openly sobbing, listening to such graphic testimony. And you had a lot of people that spoke. Cheryl Sandberg spoke, Sheila Katz, the CEO of 
National Council of Jewish Women spoke, Mandana Dayani spoke, Senator um, Kristen Gillibrand spoke, we had Lenora Bargil who spoke, and we also heard, and I think that the most powerful um, speakers were the people that I referenced before, Yal Reichert and Sherry Mendez and Simcha Greiman, who spoke about what it's been like to pick up the pieces, what it was like to actually be present in those houses with those bodies, what they saw. And it was so important to hear their testimony because we can read about a million things and we can read articles about what people are saying, but to hear from a person who walked into a house and saw what they saw is very different than reading it in the newspaper. Rachel, from what you say, it sounds as though this wasn't just preaching to the choir because some organizations actually finally released statements. That was going to be my next question. As great as it is, as important as it is to put this out there, if you're telling people who already believe that, what was the point? But it sounds like there actually was a point that had a positive impact. Yeah. And look, could, you know, I am, I don't know all the organizations that were in the room, but I think what it did was it moved the needle. And I think on some level, you know, we are dealing with, a world right now who sees um, Israel as the aggressor, right? We're dealing with a world who who is willing to disbelieve what was done on October 7th. And it feels like we're dealing with a lot of people within the world who can't hold those two truths at the same time. And so I really think that the purpose of this, providing testimony about what happened on October 7th by Hamas, it was really powerful. Um, and it was important for the people in the room to hear it, whether they were people who already believed that happened or whether they were people who really didn't have an idea or had no invested knowledge, right, of what happened. Um, and there were reporters in the room, obviously, and there have been a lot of articles that have been written about it in a variety of different papers around the world. Um, but it was it was almost debilitating in how powerful that day was. You know, I've heard of different people who, even though they may have believed things before, when they hear testimony or see video evidence, it changes something fundamentally emotionally inside of them. I saw something just yesterday, we're recording on Friday, with Chris Cuomo, who had not denied anything before about October 7th, as far as I know, but he saw the film that had been put together of the atrocities, the 45 to 50 minute film of just a piece of what had been filmed, and he was completely taken aback by it and talked about it. And I think just that alone justifies it, even if someone already believes it, but being able to affect them emotionally in that way to understand the degree of what we're talking about here, of how bad it actually was, is very important. And if I could add one more thing to that, I've said this metaphor before, but the first Rashi in all of Chumash talks about why does Chumash begin with Breshit and not with the first mitzvah in Parshat Bo. Rashi says, Hashem wanted us to understand that the land of Israel belongs to us because he created the world. And the question is often asked, no one's going to believe us. You could go to the UN and say, hey, Rashi says that we own the land. What difference does it make? It's not about convincing anybody else. It's about reminding ourselves of what we know to be true. And I think that might have also been a positive consequence of what took place that day. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you from my own experience when it was over, like I couldn't get up. I was sitting in my seat. The people that I was there with had left, right? The whole room was kind of getting up. People were making their way out. And I just sat there. And I've I've seen and heard a lot of really horrific things in the course of my career, right? I, I, I am not somebody who has a thin skin when it comes to hearing about really horrific things. And I I couldn't get up. Right. And I somehow made my way up and I made my way into a, we had a, a separate meeting with 
a variety of people that were there. It was a closed meeting to talk about to debrief on everything that we had heard. I finally made my way there and I could barely have water, right? You, it, it is, it was horrific to listen to, but it was horrific to realize this isn't a story from 50 years ago. You know, this past summer I took, I was in Israel and I took my, uh, my 12 year old daughter to Yad Vashem, right. As part of like her bat mitzvah year. And I remember thinking, you know, she's 12. She knows a lot about the Holocaust. I've been to Yad Vashem a million times, right. You know, there's something about going with your daughter. And I remember thinking, what is it going to feel like, right. When I take her into this space and she's sees a different aspect of these atrocities that are part of our history, what's it going to feel like as a parent, right? I, I hadn't had that specific experience with this particular child. And I remember thinking when we walked out of there, you know, this is our history. And my 12-year-old is not going to know Holocaust survivors for the majority of her life, right? Because whereas I grew up knowing many, many and having grandparents that were Holocaust survivors were so far removed, it's so important to have these moments. When I sat in the UN, all I could think was, this was seven weeks ago. This is not far removed. We don't even have all we don't even have all the names of the people who were killed because they're still piecing DNA evidence together. I mean, the notion of, of bodies having been burnt, of having been so destroyed that we can't even give solace to families or that there's no family member to give solace to because the entire family was wiped out. I mean, that notion that this is not in our history, this is not something that we can go and visit a museum about. This is an active thing that has happened to people that so many of us know, that is that is mind-blowing and debilitating. And I think that there is a moment that I that I think so many of us have to take to just say it is really hard to take this all in. It's really hard. Now this took place at the UN and one of the organizations that has come under a lot of fire, justifiably, in my opinion, is the UN Women's Rights Council Yeah, for not saying anything for a long time. And then I don't know how the story ended. They then eventually put out a statement, which they then deleted. Yes. I'm not even quite sure. (laughs) So my question is, first of all, what do you know about that particular organization or sub-organization? And second of all, were they part of this conference? Because it sounds like they should have been. Yeah, it's a good question. I actually don't know for sure if they were in the room. I, I hope that they were. I wasn't one of the organizers, so I really don't know. Um, and I I followed the no statement, the statement, the retraction of the statement, another statement. Look, and I think that at its core, part of the reason, and this is conjecture on my part, I don't have an idea or any information about the inner workings of this or of you know of this subset of the UN at all. But I do think that it comes down to not being able to hold multiple truths at the same time. And I really think that that concept is something that all of us should be able to do as adults and we can all do, right? It is okay to be on the side of feeling that what is happening in Gaza is horrific. It's also okay to understand that there are people that need, that that there's a, that, that, that it's, it's impossible to take joy in any way from the death and destruction of anyone. There isn't an IDF soldier that I know who is joyous in any way right now. This is not a time of joy, right? This is not a time of happiness. This is horrific. And also, 
we can also hold the truth that what Hamas did was absolutely horrific, right? And that they are a terrorist organization. And so a part of what I'm seeing when I see things out there is I wonder how many people have really taken the moment to recognize that you can hold those truths at the same time. Um, you can you know, want to be somebody that that believes in something politically or that believes in something else politically and still recognize the horror that so many people are going through. Palestinians, Israelis, Muslims, Jews, like none of this is okay. I agree completely. And I've noticed that myself. Sometimes I've spoken about a particular issue and I've sometimes said Israel was wrong here or this politician was wrong. And Someone or some people have sometimes said, no, you can't say that now. This is not the time to criticize anything about Israel. They said it's Mahal Shem Shemayim, you're desecrating the name of God, to which I respond, no, not saying anything when something is wrong. That's the true desecration of God's name because Correct. we need to call out good behavior and bad behavior, even if it's on our own side, perhaps especially if it's on our side, in order to say, this is not who we are, this is not what we represent. We can hold that truth and say, we're still fully justified in what we're doing, while also acknowledging not every single thing that every single person in every context does is always right. A hundred percent. But that leads to my next question, which is about the organizations that have failed altogether to say anything. Women's organizations, organizations that are dedicated to eradicating violence against women. And for some reason, they have not taken this layup. Whatever you think about Israel and Palestine, clearly rape should not be a weapon of war. They all agree with that, but they can't say it. And as you said, it's probably based on this idea of not being able to hold those multiple truths together, which is very, very unfortunate. But can you mention any organizations that you know of that have failed and that have not come forward when we would have expected in any other context that they would have made a statement or multiple statements about this? You know, I'm trying to think of particular organizations. I have a hesitancy to call anybody out because I truly believe that there's a lot happening behind the scenes to, even though it's delayed and even though it's nine weeks later, right, to be able to get them to a place where they can acknowledge and say publicly what happened on October 7th, the gendered-based violence that was committed by Hamas was horrific. I think a big piece of this UN session was to get organizations to be able to say that. And so I can say overall, I think that the there are many, many women's organizations, many organizations that deal with mental health professionals, many organizations that deal with sexual assault and with rape, that it would have been, I don't even know what the word is, wonderful feels like the wrong word, but it would have been the right thing to see a statement of sorts from them. I also think that it's important to recognize that, um, and this is and this is an important piece as well. A lot of times people might make the right statement at the wrong time and they get eviscerated for that. So for example, if in a month from now you have somebody that says, you know, what happened on October 7th was horrific and they put it out on social media, I can imagine that there are going to be a lot of people in the comments saying, where were you two months ago? Or where were you three months ago? And I think one of the things that I really learned and heard from many people who spoke at the UN, from Sheryl Sandberg, you know, from Sheila Katz, was this notion of like, we are sharing this information because it is important for people to understand what happened. And at a certain point, we need people to speak up. And if the response is, you should have spoken up eight weeks ago, that's that's not helpful, right? It's not helpful to move the needle. And so, you know, a part of me, I'm not really sure how I feel, right, about late statements on a personal level. But what I do think is that the only way for us to get organizations and for people to acknowledge and to realize the horrificness of what happens 
is to have those meetings with them, those conversations with them, those closed door conversations with them to get them to that place. And I think that there are a lot of really phenomenal leaders within our world and, you know, especially in the United States that are doing that right now. That is such an interesting way of looking at it. I never thought of it before like that, Rachel, in the sense that we're going to try and convince them, please, Sheryl Sandberg will say, please release a statement. They finally release a statement. And then people go and say, oh, what value are you? You should have done this two months ago. And basically you've told them you shouldn't have released a statement. It's not really fair. I never really thought of it in those terms. Right. And I wouldn't say that it's, you know, any particular person who's asking anybody to make a statement. I do want to clarify that. But I think one of the things that I heard in this U.S. session is we are sharing this testimony so that you will take this back. Right. There is the hope that, you know, if Rain was sitting in the room at the in the U.N., which they were, that they'll hear. Could you just explain, it, Rachel, what Rain is? Sure. Rain is. Um, in the United States, one of the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organizations. And I think that the idea is not to tell people that they have to do something, right? That is not effective. We know we know this from parenting. Like you say something, you're just going to assume that it's going to happen. But I think the idea and, and I think the brilliance behind this special session was inviting those people like Rain, right? A national organization that so many sexual abuse survivors and victims of sexual violence look to to invite organizations like that into the room to say, here's the testimony. We're not telling you, you have to speak out, but we're inviting you to, right? Like we are, it's not about a particular agenda. It's about being able to have them recognize the horror that happened. We need people to speak out, right? Well, let me ask about that. Why do we need people to speak out? Of course, I recognize that it is important, but I'll play devil's advocate by asking, what exactly is the point? Obviously, it feels good for people to acknowledge that which we know to be true and to feel our pain, but does it actually matter in some larger context? I think different people would have a different opinion about whether it matters or not, right? I am a firm believer that when it comes to any survivor of sexual assault, violence, rape, or anything of that sort, and people who haven't survived, right a lot of the a lot of the victims who are not survivors right they are not here to speak for themselves i think collectively it's really important for the world to not only remember them but to understand the atrocities right just like we could say like why is it important for someone to speak out on holocaust remembrance day right or why is it important for someone to speak out about anything that's happening that's horrific i think because when you have people that have survived people rallying around them knowing that they what happened to them is not being denied when you have family members that have survived knowing what their family members had happened to them in those last moments of their lives when they are being rallied around. And I think as a whole, the notion of we shouldn't be going backwards, right? We just spent five years or four years, however long it's been, dealing with Me Too, especially in the United States, right? The knowledge of what it means to come forward, to acknowledge sexual violence in the workplace, in life, right? The the way that it just decimates everybody. We've spent so much time ensuring that people start to realize that, you know, it is not a survivor or a victim's fault. It would be, I think from my position, when I see those statements coming out and acknowledging what happened on October 7th, in terms of the gender-based violence, it feels it feels right to me because we are a world that has chosen to speak out about sexual violence over the course of the past few years. And we shouldn't be silent when it's happening just because it's happening in 
let's say a different country than the United States. And so for me, I think that that is powerful for someone else. They might feel like it's irrelevant. I don't need you to speak out and say anything. I just need us to survive and, and exist, you know, and, and everybody feels differently and that's okay. Now, Rachel, have there been any organizations that you're willing to mention that have been good, that have actually put out statements that have been positive and do not seem to avoid it or make a yes, but statement because it's involving Israel and the Palestinians? Um, there have been. I don't want to name them. I actually, the reason I don't want to name them is because I'm worried I'm going to forget some. Um, there are obviously okay. Jewish organizations, but there are also non-Jewish organizations that have come out um, and have made some really powerful statements. And so, you know, I hesitate to name on either on either side right now. I don't want to, I don't want to leave anybody out. Um, but I also think that every time I've seen a statement that has acknowledged it, it's almost like, oh, thank you. Like there's a validity to this that's helpful, right? So I think that one of the things that's important is that people actually look up if there's an organization that means something to them, look to see if they made a statement. Not everybody has a huge, massive social media following, right? There are a lot of organizations that have made statements and 15 people like them, right? You know, you could have that as well. Um, and reach out to the organizations that you volunteer for, that you donate money to, right? The ones that you feel passionately about to see what they have said and maybe to have a conversation about if they haven't said anything, why they haven't. Okay, Rachel, that leads to my next question, which is, what can all of us, the people listening, people in the Jewish community and people outside of the Jewish community for whom this is a serious concern, the lack of response, what should we do? What's the next step that you think has to take place? You mentioned just now reaching out to those organizations. Is there anything else you could recommend to do? I think that's actually a really hard question. And the reason why I think it's hard is because we're all navigating this trauma in so many different ways. And I think that there are a lot of people that are listening that need things to do, that want things to do, that the way that they kind of navigate, whether it's honestly a firsthand trauma or a secondary trauma, is by doing things, right? By wanting to be out there. And I think we're seeing a lot of people on social media sharing a lot of information, people that are Jewish, people that are not Jewish, people of all different religions. And I think that in and of itself, the idea of reaching masses is really, really powerful. And I also think that there are people who are really traumatized from what happened, who don't feel like they have a next step or that they can do anything. And I don't want to discredit the fact that you don't have to be loud to move forward. Right. And I think that there are a lot of people who might be sitting there saying, tell me what I'm supposed to do. Like, am I supposed to reach out to people? Am I supposed to write blogs? Am I supposed to write op-eds? Like, am I supposed to all of a sudden have an Instagram account? But if it's not who they are and that's not something that brings them some sense of purpose, then it's not the right thing for them. And I also think that this is still really raw. And there are people who need to sit in the rawness of this trauma and kind of navigate through it, right? You have everybody who's living in Israel, right? There are still rockets that are happening all the time, people that are still running to bomb shelters, people whose sons and brothers and wives and sisters and children are serving in the IDF, right? And, and everybody is just on edge. And so I feel hesitant to say this is something that we should all be doing next because I don't know that there is one thing that we should all be doing next. I think we need to get through the day. And for some people, that's actually just as much as they can do. And I want to give validity to that. And I think that one more thing, which is important on the other side, the reason that it is important perhaps to do something, and I don't mean 
for us, for me, for people listening, but I mean for organizations to speak out, just as you're speaking now, I'm thinking about it, is that something which we thought couldn't happen in 2023 vis-a-vis gender-based violence, as you just said, this is not a film from 75 years ago. This just happened 10 weeks ago. When something happens that we thought was impossible, it kind of moves the needle, and now that becomes admissible, unless it immediately is universally shut down as being beyond the pale, and those people who did it are made to understand that this cannot happen. Right now, obviously, Hamas is being made to understand that they made a mistake in attacking Israel, but I'm not sure that they're understanding that gender-based violence per se is a problem since so many people are either justifying it or ignoring it, and of course, that might mean that others are watching And others might not worry about that in the future and say, well, that's another tool that we didn't think was in our toolbox that perhaps is in our toolbox. Do you think that's true? Look, I think gender-based violence has always been an aspect of war. Always. I don't think it's new. I just think that what's new is the idea of like GoPro video footage, right? The, the What's new is that, you know, you have that, look, there's gender-based violence in, in the war with Russia against Ukraine, right? There's gender-based violence from, from Bosnia, from Yugoslavia, right? From Rwanda. Like we have testimonies and, and, and people that some who have survived and some that have not from years and years of strife and war and gender-based violence has always been an aspect of war, right? Even historically, like if you look at Jewish texts, right, you know that that gender-based violence, that rape has always been a, a weapon of war and that has to stop. That has to stop. And I don't know what the answer is, but the notion that anybody, no matter who they are, Jew, non-Jew, whatever war it is, could ever use rape as a tool of war is something every single person should be able to stand up and say there is not a person in this world who should ever be using that as a weapon of war, and especially not against civilians, no matter who they are. And like that statement, it feels like such a simple statement, and I think it's so hard for people to really wrap their head around I don't even know if that totally answered the question. I think you did answer it. I think you're expressing the same frustration that I'm feeling and that everybody listening is feeling in watching what's going on right now. Okay, Rachel, this was a very difficult episode. I can't say it was a pleasure speaking with you, but I really appreciate your giving your time and your emotions and being able to talk with you about what is not an easy topic, but which is very important for everybody to hear. So, and thank you very much for joining me. Thank you so much. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? 
The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffee House Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.